Welcome to the Sports and Torts Podcast, your go-to podcast for entertaining conversations on sports, law, and business. This podcast is powered by the J. Stein Law Firm, a personal injury law firm in Atlanta, Georgia. And now, here is your host, Joshua Stein. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Sports and Torts. As always, my name is Joshua Stein, and I cannot wait to spend this next hour with everybody. Make sure to go check out any past episodes you may have missed at sportsandtorts.com and hit that subscribe button so you get notifications when new episodes are released. We have another great episode for you all today, and I am super pumped to start this. Today, in fashion you can only find here at Sports and Torts, we have actually found a way to marry mediation with music. Two things that I love, and they're coming together right before our very eyes. To do that, we have a full cast of characters here in the lab today, or in my basement. We have my friend and mediator extraordinaire from Miles Mediation, Mr. Joe Murphy. We also have some of his friends that he plays music with that just so happens to include a very special person to me. My dad, the one and only Stanley Stein, a.k.a. Dr. Peppa, is finally in the Sports and Torts house. Sports and Torts house. And of course, we can't have any musical party without singer, songwriter extraordinaire, Mr. Harvey Glickson. Guys, y'all are all here. This is great. We're in the basement. What could be better? Nothing. Great to be here. Nothing could be better. Yeah, so we're, we're trying the best way to, to do this. We decided, Joe, me and you were going to talk a little law, some, some mediation, some seriousness, and then we're going to take my dad and take Harvey out from the back and bring him <laughs> in from the bullpen and let them talk a little bit. The problem is I'm serious about music, not mediation. So uh, <laughs> uh, you're throwing me a curveball there. But Maybe we should put you at the end. Exactly. We can, we, can switch, we can switch it up. Maybe so. So, Joe, you had a great suggestion for, um, for the drinking part of the podcast, which, you know, I have a reputation. That's, that's kind of part of it. So I'm going to let you explain kind of what, you're, what you did, what we're doing. I think it's a great idea, and so far, so good. Well, I have an untested theory in knowing that you're a man of science. And uh, so my theory is that uh, there's a reason why you go to any whiskey bar, there's a thousand bourbons and other types of whiskeys, and they always have two Irish whiskeys, Bushmills, Jamesons, that's it. And so I have a theory that all Irish whiskeys taste the same. So I went to Sherlock's before I came over here, and I said, I want your most expensive Irish whiskey, and I want your cheapest Irish whiskey. And I've got them right here uh, for our expensive uh, Irish whiskey, and I should say it's weighing in only at ninety. I was going to say, what's what's the spread here? On <laughs> the spread is not. I, I, I felt a certain confidence asking for the most expensive Irish whiskey. I would not have felt if I was asking for the most expensive uh, bourbon. Say, no, it was going to be topped out a certain. Exactly. Amount. So, uh, the Irishman, twelve years in the bottle, uh, is our uh, weighing in at ninety dollars. Is our most expensive Irish whiskey at Sherlock's. Now, I think Total Wine has a few more, uh, and the cheapest. Uh, they had to drain a radiator to fill this bottle, but it's called Old Tom Horan. I think you pronounce it that way, H-O-R-A-N. Um, probably makes a good Irish coffee. Probably loosens a nut that's uh, rusted to a bolt. Uh, but we're going to side-by-side these two and test my theory that there's not a world of difference between the best and the worst when it comes to Irish whiskey. Old Tom has all sorts of functions. Uh Sipping, it might be on the low end of the, fu- the function. <laughs> I will say I'm not a huge Irish whiskey fan, but this is really good. The first one, uh, talk about scientific. you got to start with the best one first, right? Like when, uh, when the palate is fully ready to go. Um, so you want me to go first? My scientific theory, uh, my, my response to, to your question about the scientific theory is that I do think there's a difference. I do think there's a difference. It's not a tremendous big difference, but enough to where I'm going for the more expensive bottle 10 times out of 10. I thought you'd say something like it had saddle leather, elderberries, and, uh, <laughs> and a hint of the fog that rolls down the eastern slope of a hill somewhere in Northern Ireland. So you've been to Napa with me before? That's, that's, how, I, <laughs> that's how I tell the, you know, the, the, the folks when I'm judging the, the fruit from the, on the wine and the palate, and I can smell this and that. Um, but it, hey, so far so good. I like it. So far I, so good. So I what, like them both. What's your opinion of Old Tom over here? I think that it's, it's a great whiskey to do this with. I don't think I'm going to serve it at any dinner parties, okay? Um, when I come home from work, you know, my, my dad taught me the 5 o'clock, you know, whiskey's always good when you get home from work. I don't think I'm going to put old time in the rotation, uh, but I will put the other one. I think that, I think the Irishman makes it in the rotation. I would tend to agree with you. I think my theory has been debunked. Uh, I will say we poured the Irishman and uh, we stuck our noses in the glass to, uh, to catch the bouquet, as it, as it were, 
Uh, we took the cap off of old Tom, and it was like one of those cartoon smoke uh, aromas that kind of came out and punched us in the nose. We could smell old Tom as soon as the top came off. Well, so. we'll, we'll check back in in about 55 minutes and see so if both of them has, has, has done what they're supposed to do to us. They had to breathe. Too. So before we get there, Joe, of course, I know you, and most people here listening know you as well. But for the people that don't, give a little introduction about yourself, what you're doing, where you're at. Absolutely. Well, I'm a mediator. That's what I do. Uh, 20 years uh, defense lawyer. Um, I now handle a few plaintiff's cases on the side just to make me humble, but uh, I am first and foremost a mediator. That's what I do. So I use that word and you use that word because we know what it is, but a lot of people don't, right? So you are a lawyer. You are a practicing lawyer for many, many years. I'm not trying to date you, but you know, for <laughs> That's a long okay. Time. I'm married, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Look married, at that. not buried. But I'm genuine. <laughs> That's a, that's I can a see the way check. this is going to go. Um, tell what mediation is and what is it? What, what is your job as a mediator? Well, mediation, if you look at sort of the Black's Law definition, it's basically a, a, an effort to resolve a dispute that is uh, hosted by a neutral third party who encourages the, the process to take place. And there's, there's types of mediation. There's uh, uh, evaluative mediation where the mediator jumps in and gives a lot of opinions. There's facilitative at the opposite end where the mediator really just sits back. It's kind of a Switzerland neutral, and, and you don't really get into the fray. Uh, I'm probably more evaluative. Uh, if, if, you're asked, if you ask my opinion, you get it. Uh, my, my feeling about my opinion is on any given day that you're my client, you've paid for it, so it's yours. Do with it what you will. We're, but we're, yeah, we're paying for your opinion, and that's what both sides want to get. So I've had lots of lawyers on this podcast. You're the first mediator. So there you go. So that's that's awesome. Um, but like I said, you started out as a defense lawyer. So talk about that transition. That transition because the best lawyers, excuse me, the best mediators are the ones that have done our jobs forever, right? Because you can say I've done there, been there, done that. I've seen everything. I agree. I think when it comes right down to it, you, you do not have to be a lawyer to be a mediator. You can take the training, you can get your registration as a neutral, and there you go. And I think to get work in court filed cases, you just have to have some background. I wouldn't do banking disputes. I don't do domestic because I have, I have no experience in that. No one thinks I know what I'm talking about in those areas, and they'd be right. Um, so it does, it does help to have that background. But I think in addition to just the legal background, just the, the background of knowing what it's like to get a case ready, knowing what it's like to wait for a jury to, to uh, deliberate. I mean, there's just the, the, the sort of the agonies and the rise and fall in the life of a, of a filed case. Sometimes, I mean, you know that, but a lot of times your client, even if you've told them maybe they don't really know what the best alternative to the negotiated resolution is, and you can kind of help them fill in the blanks. Often I'm just, like with a client of yours, I'm not telling them anything they haven't heard from you already. That's not true for every lawyer that I've worked for. I mean, sometimes people are, are, are less uh, uh, candid with their clients about the rigors of litigation or what's going to go on at mediation. But if I'm just backing up what you've already told them, I'm providing a service. We're here to make your job easy. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So, there you go. Some people so, are easier to work know, for than others, and I love them all. So people hear me talk all the time about this podcast, my videos about the personal injury cases I handle, the car wrecks, the truck wrecks, the dog attacks, all that kind of stuff. Those are the cases that you're mediating, right? I mean, personal injury cases are, is it 100% or a very large percentage of what is it you're mediating? It's a large percentage. It, my mediation practice really follows my law practice. I did a variety of torts and about you know, 15 to 20% contract business dispute litigation. And that's, that's exactly what I'm mediating. And you had mentioned earlier about, you know, understanding a file and taking it, you know, from inception to the end, which it's a jury trial, which doesn't happen as much anymore because good folks like you are getting our cases resolved at mediation. Um, but back when you were handling cases, I mean, you were in court all the time, all the time, which, which now you're able to look at the you know, plaintiff's lawyer, defense lawyer, look at our clients, look at the insurance companies. Like, this is how a jury's likely going to see this. This is how a judge is going to rule on certain issues. And it gives you tons of credibility, right? It does. But I'll say this. I'm kind of like one of those retired athletes that kind of goes up into the booth. You know, I played back in the leather helmet days in many ways. One example, when I was in the wheelhouse of my litigation trying 20, 25 cases a year, uh, which was not unusual back then, particularly for a defense lawyer, um, there was really no social media uh, to speak of. I mean, people wouldn't go home the second, you know, first night of trial before the second day and Google the location of where it happened or, or check the Facebook page of the plaintiff, things like that. And I know judges give admonitions, don't Google, don't go home. People and, are doing it. And they go straight home and do exactly that because, you know, human nature is what it is. 
So there's a lot of things that have changed, but I definitely keep up with what's going on with the judges, with the court systems, with the jury verdicts. Uh, I, I watch the films. I don't, I'm not on the field anymore, but I watch the films. If there's a what some people call nuclear verdicts, uh, you might call just a fair verdict. <laughs> a, a reasonable result. A reasonable for result from yes. an enlightened jury. Um, I always reach out to the to the lawyers involved. It's if it's you know, if it's the plaintiff's lawyer, I might call in the next two or three days. If it's the defense lawyer and it's a large verdict, I might wait a while before I bump into them. I'll ask them, you know, t can you break it down for me? I, this is a cautionary tale sort of thing, and I'd like to know what happened. Why did, why did this happen in your mind? Because obviously somebody didn't see it coming. And then you can use that in your discussions with both rooms at mediation to say, this is how it's playing out right now, and this is what you need to know when you're making your decisions, right? So you mentioned, did you say 20 to 25 trials a year did i hear you right i think the most i ever tried in one year was 25 okay so i'm not great at math but i'm i'm good enough to be able to do quick multiplication that's a ton of jury trials that you did well i, I tried over 250 cases wow that's and, incredible. and i practiced more than than 10 years but most most of the cases that i tried when i was doing a clip of 20 or 25 a year was uh earlier in my career i was trying lower end cases i mean candidly it was a lot of uh, what we used to call chicken back cases back then, even the plaintiff's part, sort of like, you know, it's a might be just chiropractic treatment, minimal impact. It's going to be a day or two to try it. It's easier to try it than settle it back then. I mean, really. And we tried a lot of cases. All of my really good friends from those days who were plaintiff's lawyers, many of them are my clients now. Uh, as I sort of graduated to more complicated cases, you don't try 20 death cases a year. And uh, you don't try 20 serious injury cases in the business litigation. So it tapered off. The last 10 years, I probably tried maybe seven to 10 cases a I year. Think, I think having that amount of jury trials under someone's belt is kind of a thing of the past in, in a civil case. It won't happen. In, in the civil world. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's criminal lawyers that can try a case like that. But, I mean, my contemporaries, there's no way anybody's going to get to that kind of a number. Well, right? as I was saying to you recently, the reason why no one will try 250 cases in a career anymore is the same reason that I've mediated 3,500 cases since 2005, because every one of those cases is the cases that didn't make it to trial. I mean, it, the, the focus has, has, has turned more towards settling cases, um, but as you and I also talked about, you don't prepare for settlement by preparing for settlement. You prepare to try your case and you're prepared to settle the case. Every case that we handle, we do that, what you just said. We, we prepare as if it's going to trial, all the witness work, all the prep work, the discovery work, and that's what gets the other side's attention. And when you get to mediation and you're, you're handling it or whoever the mediator is, that's recognized. And the, the defense side's like, this guy knows what he's doing. I'm not saying me. I'm just saying in general. Like well, they, you can say. They, no, they, you know, they know what they're doing, and this case is going to be tried properly, and that's how you get your settlements. Right. But I know from – I can tell you this without divulging any confidence. When I've got you in the other room, there is a respect on the defense side that you know what you're doing and you're willing to do it and you're willing to see it through. And you vet your clients really well. I mean, that's, uh, I don't have the problem with you that I have to install a spine in you to prove to the other side that you've got enough backbone to try the case. And, uh, and, and that helps. It really does. Uh, it makes a huge difference. And you know, as, a layman, as a layman, why don't these court cases make it to court? Is it part of it overcrowding in court? And why, why are those, what's that reason? It's me. I'm the, I'm the only reason. No. Uh, the truth is, if you look at the total number of, of claims that become filed cases, that became jury trials, that became verdicts, even if we go back 30 years, uh, very few of the cases that actually start with claims get to a jury verdict or an appeal verdict, certainly. Um, so the process, it, it has never been the case that most filed cases got tried. Uh, it's just more codified, it's more institutionalized now that there's this process that you go to a mediation uh, to a particular facility and you undergo this step in the litigation that's called mediation. I've been where, through it, yeah. Yeah, so, so it's just, it's become really more of, it's something that used to happen. Um, in many ways, I think mediation has become a proxy for trust. Uh, and I, you know, I started practicing law back when the earth was still cooling, dinosaurs roamed freely in the 80s. And... Uh, Back at that time, there was a great deal of trust that still exists in, in parts now, but, 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 but plaintiffs trusted their lawyers. Uh, the lawyers on both sides trusted each other that if you said something, your, your word was as good as your bond and that sort of thing. On the, on the defense side, the defense lawyers were trusted by the adjusters they worked for. The adjusters were trusted by the companies that they worked for. And I, and I, I think you might agree with me, Josh. I think there's been 
a breakdown in a lot of that web of trust, you kind of need something that, that serves as a proxy for that. And I, I think that's what mediation does. It allows you to come in and you can trust and have some faith in the process and it kind of helps restore those other levels of trust. So with that said, is mediation a relatively new aspect of, of law or has it been around forever or has it just become more prominent or pronounced in the last 20 or 30 years? I can speak from my perspective. So I started practicing in 2004. I remember when John Miles started his practice. It was out of his Ford Explorer. Absolutely, yeah. Right? And I was at Progressive. needed a lot of progressive work. And gosh, to see y'all grow to where you are now, offices all over the, the South. I was the fourth one at the firm. I think we have over 80 mediators now in our various offices. It, it, so that, that answers your question about growth. So the, the, the typical case back in 2004, um, mediation, at least from my mind, wasn't like an absolute thing that was going to happen at some point because the judge wasn't going to make you do that. Now, I feel like a case is not going to be tried without a judge forcing you to at least attempt mediation. Um, I don't know if, if you've seen the same thing, but every case I'm on, the judge at some point in time is going to ask, have you guys gone to mediation yet? If not, I'm going to order you there. Because the judges want cases resolved, too, without taking up the resources of the courtroom. Um, I think it's gotten more expensive to try cases. I think the whole process has gotten expensive, more expensive. And so the insurance companies like a, an ability to minimize that um, cost. There's a lot of risk out there. I mean, in Georgia, you mentioned nuclear verdicts, and I would say they're just fair and reasonable based on the facts. But the truth of the matter is there's some big verdicts that come out of Georgia, and the insurance companies, they don't want to take the risk that happened to them. They don't want their name on the front of the paper. They and don't. So, and so they, they say, let's go to mediation. Let's try to put a value on this case that makes sense for everybody involved and eliminate the risk of what a trial would look like. My clients love mediation, too, because it brings certainty. I mean, you tell your opening spiel is something like, do you want this decision in the hands of 12 strangers that weren't smart enough to get out of jury duty themselves? Or do you want the decision in your own, in your own hands where we will come to a number that whatever it might be, like you're the one that makes the decision. And so my clients love it. No, I think the empowerment part piece of that is very important. And I think particularly for most of what I do is tort mediation and the one person in the room who has no experience with the process is typically the, the plaintiff. And it can be very daunting if you think about it. I mean, you've, you've got a lot of experience. So does the other lawyer, the adjuster. You know, these are people that, that professionally evaluate cases. And to this individual, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. And their perspective is very personal, and it's legitimate because it's personal. They, they, they understand what they went through like nobody else in the case ever will. But they have to also understand they're not just there to express a grievance. They're there to make a, a business deal. They're, they're, they are the adjuster for the plaintiff's side. And so I think guiding them through the process of taking something that's very personal and out of their control in a court system, putting it back in their control um, in an informed way where they get to hear from the other side, they get to weigh all of that. I always say to the plaintiffs, um, whatever else happens in a mediation, the last thing that happens is your decision to accept or reject the highest number that the other side comes out with. The second to last thing is always their highest and best offer, but the last thing is the plaintiff's decision to accept it or reject it. Yeah, I always tell my clients that, you know, Joe Murphy is not a judge. He's not going to tell you what you can and can't do. He's not going to make a decision that's binding upon you. But you better listen to what he says because he's got a ton of experience. He knows what he's doing. So we're going to listen to him as a figure that's got a lot of knowledge. But at the end of the day, like you just said, it's your ultimate decision. And that makes a lot of sense to them. Harvey, to, to your question, it's almost become like our client's day in court. You know, it's, it's cliche that everybody wants their day in court. Depositions where they get questioned by the lawyer, they don't feel that way because they're being grilled about the event. But their mediation... Um, for the bigger cases, their lawyers put on a presentation, some people call it a dog and pony show, um, where you would almost be like the opening presentation you do to, 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 a, to, to a jury. Yeah. I mean, my brother and sister and I went through it. Yeah, yeah, so you know. Um, so I found it to be very effective. Now, on this podcast, we talk a lot about marketing, about how you market yourself. You mentioned earlier um, how you used to, you know, tried some smaller cases, but then kind of, you know, moved away to bigger cases. You medi you're mediating big cases. I mean, when your name's associated with a case, it's generally not a rear-end chiropractic, you know, small case. So how do you position yourself in a pretty crowded mediator market to be a guy that's associated with bigger cases that, you know, are, that, that have tough issues and need somebody's experience? Because that's how we all kind of view you. So how, how did you do that? That's a, that's a good question. There's, a, there's a, a unique feature of mediation marketing that makes it both difficult at the beginning and self-sustaining 
as you, as it starts to move forward. And and it and it really comes down to um, if a person becomes a registered neutral and they decide they want to mediate, the typical thing they might do is send out a letter to 50 for lawyer friends that they have and say, pick me for a mediation. And the challenge with that is it takes two lawyers to, to decide, at a minimum on a two-party case, to decide to use uh, Josh Stein. He's just become a new mediator. He's going to give up the, the lucrative world of being a high-dollar uh, plaintiff's lawyer, and he wants to slum it and become a mediator. Um, a lawyer has to say both your name and the other lawyer has to say okay. So it, you have to you have to be more aggressive and I think more selective when you start mediating. You don't send a letter to 50 people. You you have lunch with three or four or five people, people that you know trust you. And you, and the pitch is not hey put my name out there for a mediation. It's like I, I, I want to be a mediator. I think I'd be good at it, but I need you to insist that I'm a mediator on one of your upcoming cases because I'm an unknown quantity as a mediator. No one knows me as a mediator. The other lawyer might know me as a lawyer, but I really need you to advocate for me because it takes you advocating for me to get that one mediation. And that, that's, a, that's a tough sell to somebody to ask them to go out. It's, it's like a car salesman who has to sell you on selling a car to somebody else. But what starts to happen, it's like that old shampoo commercial. They tell two friends and they tell two friends. Every case you mediate is one person who said your name, and one person who agreed to it. Now that's two people. If those two lawyers are gonna come back and see you again, each of those lawyers, they're not gonna come back with each other again. Lawyer A is gonna come back with somebody else. Lawyer B is gonna come back with somebody else. So that two just became four. It's like if you have every plaintiff that you worked for, they said, Josh, you did a great job. And you're like, okay, I'll represent you on the next case, but you gotta bring another client. You, I can't just represent you, you have to bring someone with you. So mediation marketing, once it starts to take off, it really has geometric growth built into it because I'm, I'm, I'm still working for people. The mediation I had today, one lawyer I'd worked with a lot, put my name out there. The other attorney who I knew very well, but had never worked for her before, simply said yes. She didn't say my name, but she said yes. And I'd like to think that's someone that might put my name out next time. So, so kind of building off of that, you know that when the, the idea of mediation is first brought up by whether it's the plaintiff side or the defense side, the next logical question is, who do you want to mediate, right? I mean, that's how it, it goes on every time. And then it's usually like, okay, you throw two or three names out, I'll throw two or three names out, whatever. I, this might not be a popular way to do it, but I kind of let the other side choose their two or three. And, you know, because if they're comfortable with that person, then I know they're going to listen to them. And I feel like I can get along with most everybody. And there's a few that, you know, I'm not big fans of, but for the most part, um, I'll kind of let them. Um, your name shows up almost every time as an option. When people ask me for options, your name shows up every time. So how do you do it where you're kind of on both sides' radar? Because you hear, well, he's very plans friendly. She's very plans friendly. He's very defense friendly. She's very defense friendly. How do you do it to where everybody kind of likes you? Everybody thinks you do a good job. That's a good question because <clears throat> you and I both are in the reputation business. The, the biggest uh, ex existential fear that I have as a mediator, since we're all in here in the podcast, and truth must be told, is that it's us and a million listeners is that is that I have one case with with one individual lawyer, and and I do something that's so repugnant to them that they reach out if it's on the plaintiff side, you know, maybe on Gappy or the listserv or on the GDLA side, and they just tell all their friends, look, Joe Murphy is just no good for our side of the case. And uh, I have this little thing that I do. I, I, I park my car, and there's a distance between where I park in the parking deck every day and getting to the door of the office. And I have just a ritual where I go through in my mind that today is not going to be the day. You know, it's, it's, it's like negative swing thoughts if you're about to hit a golf ball. Don't slice, don't hook, don't slice. But I say to myself, be attentive. Be, every, be who I need to be in the moment. Because mediations can get... Um, I won't say emotional, but you can you, if you're getting into it the way I think you need to, even as a neutral, um, you, you, you could say something that you might regret saying to somebody. You, you, we have to push people, but you might push them too far. So I, I, the biggest fear I live with is, is creating that, that reputation where it looks like my thumb is on one side or the other. And it never is, but you don't want that appearance. So I, I very much think about that as a, I've got to be 
I've got to be the perfect neutral in this case today for these people. That's what they're paying for, and that's what they deserve. So in terms of if you're looking at the plaintiff, him or herself, or the decision maker of the insurance company, like, do you have a particular style you use to gain credibility with that person or to connect with them or somehow make it to where you and that person see eye to eye or, or can get to a point where you see eye <clears throat> to eye? Well, you always want to find ways to connect with people. Um, you know, Zoom mediations have opened up a new arena for that because I was mediating. It was a hybrid mediation. Everyone was there except the adjuster who was on the Zoom. And um, she had a Labradoodle there with her in her lap that's almost a twin for my Labradoodle. So immediately we got the dog thing going on. And uh, so we connect with the dogs. Very often you'll see if people are in their office or their home with the Zoom in the background, well, that's a lot of books. Did you read all those books? You know, you see what co what college jerseys are hanging up back there. Oh my God, that's a Fender Strat. Is that a Mexican or an American Strat? You know, uh, what is that? A Rickenbacker back there? Um, if you can connect on music or sports or anything in life, um, as long as it's genuine, there's nobody better at this than Greg Parent. I mean, you know Greg, and Greg is Greg is a naturally gregarious, ironic person. Uh, who genuinely loves people, is genuinely interested in what's going on in people's lives. And it just, it spills over very naturally uh, in his mediation practice. And, and he's someone I look at and, and just say, be like Greg, you know? It's funny, be like Greg, make a t-shirt like that. No. Be like Greg. What would Greg do? What would Greg do? <laughs> uh, shout out Greg, we love you. Um, it's funny you mentioned the Zoom kind of mediations or Zoom meetings and, and looking what's going on in people's backgrounds. My brother was on here a couple weeks ago. And he said that over the last couple of years, he's connected with his clients even closer because he can have a, literally a peek into their lives, into their house, see what their interests are. So you're feeling the same way when you're doing the mediations. And I'll tell you that, you know, I think that y'all pivoted really well during COVID to those virtual mediations um, where things were stuck for a while and, you know, we couldn't come into your office to do it, couldn't get to court. And so that was a really, really smart way to, to get things moving. Um, and y'all are still doing a bunch of those, right? It, it, I would say that um, most of our mediations now have a, a, a virtual component. More often than not, one party or another might be joining virtually. We call them hybrids. Um, we, we do some Zoom mediations still, but, but it, it's mostly back in the office. But for an entire year, um, you know, my wife has some issues that would have made COVID, early COVID, when, when it was really bad COVID. It, I just couldn't bring it home. And so I... I Starting probably the first week of April 2020, I did not step foot in the Miles Mediation Facility until mid-April of 2021. So I was literally not in the facility for a year. And I have to credit John Miles and our staff for immediately seeing where things were going. Not just that it was going virtual, but that it was Zoom and not Teams and not WebEx. I mean, they, they came together so quickly and brought us up to speed. I had about two dead weeks the first couple of weeks of April. By mid to late April, my calendar was full Just again full. with Zoom mediations. Me and you had a mediation. You might not remember this, but we had a mediation during COVID. We were all virtual, and one of the lawyers on our team was out in Colorado. And, I, re I remember that. And he was appearing in his in his bed. He was sitting in his bed. I think I told you about this. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, dude, we could we can be a little informal here, but can you at least put the back? And I don't know if that was with you in the joint session or not, but. I was like, can we at least drop a background where you look like you're not laying in bed? But you probably saw some crazy stuff over that year. Or maybe was, still see it. I met lots of dogs. There's personal, then there's personal. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I met lots of dogs and cats and kids and grandparents and, uh, you know, uh, a husband who was, you know, walking through the back of the den to, to, to you know, probably drink milk out of the jug from the refrigerator with his towel wrapped around him, and he didn't realize his adjuster wife was already up doing her mediation because it was 7 o'clock on the West Coast. And he would, you know, there were some interesting things that happened. And the thing is, you can have a good laugh with all of that. The thing that we really got the best at was not necessarily fixing all the glitches, but just getting comfortable with them. You know, you think of how awkward it is, like if, particularly when you're court presenting and, and the technology doesn't work. The one thing COVID taught us all was to be very unstressed about technology failures okay so your zoom link's not working can you call in if you can't call in we'll just put a we'll, cell we'll phone next here, to it. we'll get you there do you have to be an attorney to be a mediator you know you know i'd say there are very few mediators that i know that are not prolific that are not also lawyers 
But there, there are a lot of other areas, though. There, there are some people that retire from, uh, you know, uh, jobs in the union or working in something like that, and then they, they mediate employment cases. So not really – I don't really know any prolific non-lawyer mediators. It'd be a tough sell. Like he was saying, you have to have two people on both sides agree to a, to a mediator. And if, if unless it's somebody that kind of knows – you know, to be able to look someone and say, this is how this is like this is going to play out. Like they're not going to have the ear of the room. So I wouldn't hire somebody that hasn't done the job. Well, there's always there's always at least factual issues, if not legal issues. A lot of I do a lot of premises, negligent security cases like that. Of course, medical negligence stuff. Um, you just kind of want someone that's been around the horn a couple of times, I think. So one thing you're also known for with your mediation is traveling with a harmonica. That's a very unique kind of feature of yours. I, and you told me once upon a time that story, how that started, which is fascinating. Uh, I was, uh, I started playing, I don't even remember, maybe four, five, six years old. My great-grandfather, who was approaching 90 at the time, and he, he's just a, he's one of these people. I'm sure he is, in my mind, 20 foot tall and, and, and bulletproof and legendary in ways that maybe weren't even true. But he was just, uh, he was an inventor, a tinkerer, a philosopher, and played harmonica. Uh, and he, you know, when he was very young, I think this was the thing where you go around with a hat and a harmonica and you can dance a jig, play the harmonica, put the hat down. Somebody might put money in it. You got lunch. If you don't like the town you're in, you can just, you know, it's bus fare. Continue on. It's bus fare, right. So his thing was, you know, always, and he gave me my first harmonicas, which were harmonicas he had had for years, and I've still got them. They all still play. And, uh, but he always said, always carry your harmonica because you never know when you're going to need it. And, I just started the practice when I was very young in grade school of carrying a harmonica. I, I, I don't remember putting one in my pocket before I came over here. You knew, you knew it was there. But I, it, but I know it's there because my keys are here, so my harmonica must be here. So I've got a harmonica with me. Is that something that you use at mediation sometimes? You know, I don't just whip it out and say, hey. <laughs> <laughs> if you get in a tough spot, is that kind of like a, a tool in your toolbox? There's a lot of people that know I carry a harmonica, and sometimes uh, I've got one adjuster I work for, and it's like I'll either be playing a happy tune or the blues. Well, you know, It's like he makes that final offer, and he's like, are you going to come in playing the blues? And Can I'm I like, put you on a spot play a happy tune for us? Let's see. But Here, I'm, I haven't like- tried to play. Get it. I should say, this is a pretty cheap harmonica. I always make sure I have one. Very good. First harmonica performance on Sports and Torch Podcast. That's so cool. Well, The read I would need for that is... uh, yeah, I would have brought a better harmonica if How'd I thought I was going to play it. You're a good, you're a good sport before the spot. That but must have been seg- the segue. Yeah, that was yeah. good. That, that's a segue. We call it in the segue in the business. So, uh, you're exactly right, Harvey. I start off by talking about music, and it's it's random. The the three of y'all are here, but it's not so random, right? So when we Joe first started talking about doing this podcast and music and all that kind of stuff, Harvey's name came up, and I don't remember exactly how, but once Harvey's name came up. That obviously led to my dad, because Harvey and my dad have been friends since, well, I'll let y'all answer the question. So you're wearing, let's just kind of frame this a little bit. Um, you're, we just heard your harmonica, you are into music, you're a musician, you're in a band, you're wearing a shirt. Bring, you know, just tell us, what, tell us what's going on music-wise. Okay, well, I was... And the connection to these, yeah, these guys. Yeah. I was, uh, I started playing drums when I was in, in middle school. In fact, the snare drum I play now with my drum set was the one first drum my mother ever bought me. It's still my favorite snare drum. And uh, high school garage bands, you know, the whole thing. We, you know, stuff I play now that are classics was new music then, you know, and that's that was that was my musical experience. And then it just all stopped. I went to college. I went to law school. I had kids. Uh, the drum set set up in the attic uh, every summer, every winter. I had no idea if it still even worked. And about ten years ago. Um, I just started playing harmonica a little bit in a place called Darwin's Burgers and Blues. They had some, uh, you could show up and they had jams on Saturdays and you could join in with different people. And I had not played music publicly in forever. And one day when I was up there, they're like, man, we could really use a drummer. And I'm like, well, I used to be a drummer. And um, I came back home, went up to the attic. It's like the scene where you just move the coverings and the dust flies. And I had to evict a family of spiders out of my bass drum. But I uh, pulled out the uh, pulled out the uh, the drums. I had to get new heads and everything. And about ten years ago, I just started dragging my drums up and playing jams. And 
uh, I met a lot of people doing that, and, and those people, uh, fast forward to the present, included Harvey Glickson. I so met Harvey. Enter, enter Harvey Glickson into your life. Enter Harvey Glickson. You met Jimmy Max. And that was a Jimmy Max. That and that about, was about four. Was that four or five years ago? It's four or five years ago. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was another one of these places that on a, I think Wednesday nights they Wednesday. used to have a thing. You'd show up and uh, uh, open mic. Open mic, and uh, and this guy would get up there and play these songs and and. And the thing about a Harvey Glickson song, I know a lot of people in the music side that uh, write original songs, but they're, they're, I mean, they're, you know, and they, they're good, but they sound like stuff you've heard before. But uh, Harvey's song, this is not hyperbole, his songs are unique, they're just different, they're melodically, rhythmically, and lyrically unique in a way that you get one of these uh, on the... Uh, <clears throat> in front of a, a recording artist that already has a following, these are the chart toppers. And Harvey's just got a gift. So when Harvey plays a song, people will come up to him and say, whose song is that? Who's the, who did that? So, so in, enter this conversation, his name comes up, and Harvey, I mean, you and my dad have, have known each other since, I don't know how old y'all were, you about to tell us, but y'all been in bands together. So talk about worlds colliding. Well, I see, I thought, and I think I'm misinformed, Harvey and I have known sixth grade, right? right? Uh, what was that? 12, 13, 12 years old. 12. Yeah. So, so we've known each other for almost almost 60 years. Yeah, yeah. getting there. But uh, I, so we played together. Um, you just go to his play, house and read a circle. And uh, first I, was ball, I was a roadie. I was a roadie for his <laughs> first band. I mean, I've been playing forever. You're a guitar, should, you're a guitar much, player. I should be much better. But anyway, but the same thing with you. I played in high school. Put the guitar. I didn't have to go in the attic because the guitar is flat. So I stuck it under my bed for 30 years. It didn't have to go in the attic. But with the kids and the family, just kind of sat there under the bed for many years. And then again, I just started bringing it out when I felt the time was right. And uh, now, were you guys like everybody else in that era? You saw the Beatles and said, "I can do that too." And then you well, went and made a band. Uh, we did get the Beatles. We did get the. Turtlenecks. We all went to Macy's that day. That's right. Downtown. I mean, I was a roadie. They had a band. They had a band, and I and I would hang out there, and he would show me like a bar chord. So I knew how to. I knew how to. I could play sort of play like a song before I really knew how to play. Then I kind of just kept playing. I mean, after yeah, he kept playing when the rest of us stopped, and so he got you know he really celebrated. He does that in our band. He does that in our band. We stopped playing. He keeps he going. Still, yeah, he still so, does that. So, so, Joe, you asked about the Beatles. You do know what my dad's email address is, right? SergeantPep537 at right. AOL.com. Yeah, exactly. First CD you ever purchased, first album. Sergeant Pep. Sure. Sergeant Pep. Sure. So, yeah, yeah Beatles runs play. very deep in our household. What is the music inspiration for the two of y'all? Any any particular artist or band or the, six, the 60s? Which two? Or the, y'all, two of y'all. Well, like, like I said, we, used, we met at... at Jimmy Max, open mic, and I, they were more of a band. I was more of a kind of, but I sat in with those guys a couple times, and then I started going to bar, to Darwin's on Saturdays and, and playing with those, with those guys. And I mean, you know, we, we'd play their kind of, there's the songs they played, and they, and they backed me up on my stuff, and it just kind of like evolved out of that. But see, and then they wanted to do something, what was that, two years ago, the Stones thing? Yeah, two years ago. It's the there, 50th anniversary a, of Sticky Fingers. Another shout out, a good buddy of ours named Rossville, great front man, and uh, he is a mu musical encyclopedia. There's just no arcane piece of information about music that he doesn't know. Right. You know? Uh, and, uh, and and Ross, we used to, um, as we used to like to say, we were the band who was named by our fans because we were the shit show. And uh, so we decided if we we're going to play publicly, we probably needed to change that a little bit. So the, the name of the band became Ross's Hit Show. But the apostrophe S behind Ross would kind of get closer to the word hit show sometimes. So it was Ross's Hit Show. We, we did that for a few years. We raised some money. I'm, a, I'm on the uh, board of a charity that, uh, that helps school kids in Honduras with lunches. And, uh, and these guys in the band, they... they we got together, and Harvey, it was Ross, it was me. Uh, Ron uh, Carrot, another friend of ours, played in that group. Who happens to be patient and, his wife's patient So that's even Six degrees of separation. Yeah, exactly. So, so the, the long story short is we've, we did that for a couple of years, and uh, 
The hit show still exists. We it kind of in and out. I mean, Harvey was with us for. We did a a cover of Sticky Fingers. We did the entire album front to back in order. And there's some tough songs on there. And that was that show was a fundraiser. Yeah. Then we did a couple more with that band. So another thing we talk a lot about on this podcast about is like hobbies and interests and outside of work or family. Um, having music as y'all's main hobby, I mean, how great of an outlet is that to get together? Right. Y'all were together all weekend, you know, putting songs together. Dad, you built a whole room over the garage. Yeah. So talk about that. I mean, talk about just, I mean, y'all, anybody can answer it, but just music is the outlet, is the hobby. Well, the especially now since I'm not working as much, it, you know, I'm looking for something to do. So it's created a whole new avenue for me. Um, a lot of recording unit and uh, speakers, monitors, the whole thing. You just go up there and you just have fun. And, you know, they have all these effects that you can kind of make yourself sound better than you really are. And so that's always good. Well, and you reach that critical point in life because when you're young, you've got potentially some time, but you don't have the money to have the nice equipment mm -hmm. that you would want. You get older and you start to make money and you've got, you could buy all the best equipment and all the sound yeah. effects. He doesn't then, do that. And then you don't have time. And then you don't have the time. So you start to get to a point in your life, I'm an empty nester, these guys are retired, and the, most and retired. The, the fear is you're going, yeah. Yeah, and it, suddenly you've got this combination of, of the interest uh, and the, and the uh, money and a little bit of time to pursue the opportunity, and it just it comes together and nicely. It is, you know, it's a lot of fun to try to do your own stuff, and the fear is you're going to kind of run out of ideas or like hard making these songs. You do. <laughs> and so you get kind of stuck sometimes, and then maybe you hear something on the radio that you kind of like, you want to kind of imitate it gives you a little bit of inspiration you, you well, take inspirations that. i introduce you as a singer songwriter which i truly you are um we're gonna listen to some songs here in a little okay. bit but what like what is your inspiration to to get you know pen to paper get some notes you do open mics all the time i do open mics i do usually one or two a week at least um I, you know the, the truth is of the last since covid i really haven't been inspired <laughs> most of those songs on there were written pre-covid and it, really since i've i've got Stuff in works, but I really haven't written a lot of words. Lyrics inspire you then? What's wrong? Mm -hmm. You know, part of it was well, part of it was really was cut, but it just you know it just it just kind of sucked the uh, inspiration yeah, out. Exactly. And then you know, then my wife retired, you know, and she's home all day, so it's just you know, it's just I don't know. It comes in spurts. It does come. In it comes in spurts. I mean, I think and, it's getting uh, ready to come back. Um, maybe this podcast will hit well, us. Yeah. yeah. Maybe. <laughs> this this will be the moment that historians, musicologists will record for future generations where Harvey's creative switch came back on and the greatest works he had yet to do. I mean, I still, I've still right got here. stuff. I still have stuff that's, you know, in progress. I mean, some stuff constantly is in yeah. progress. So what, remind me the names of y'all's bands back in the day. Shoot, we had a Shades of Dawn. I don't remember that was that wasn't me. Cheap Thr that Chase Dawn me. was oh yeah, no, uh, cheap me. cheap thrills. OBS that was OBS recent. cheap job masters. Job but that was job masters. That was your that was your bands. Yeah, our band was with Harvey's OBS mainly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. OBS. It was one Bill Short one Bill named Short. after our buddy that if he was alive he would have been playing. And I played with Bill's Bill, um, Dennis, and I played with him in high school. He was part of the um, the job masters. Yeah, and that's really kind of got what got me playing because we lived in subdivisions across from each yeah. other. So yeah. I would see Bill all the time up till up till he said he had a headache, and the next yeah. thing you know, he was, he was gone. having brain surgery, and then he was gone. Yeah, it's tough. Um, so Joe, what's the feeling like when you're on stage playing in front of a crowd? Um, not many people have the chance to do something like that. You know, it, it, it's a, it's a, it is a thrill. Now, a lot of what we've done and will do. Um, if you're in a bar and there's five people, that's awesome. If two of them are listening, that's great. Uh, you know, we've, we've, we've played those kind of crowds before. I had the opportunity with another band that I'm in that's mostly lawyers. Uh, it's more of a pop-up band. Um, Bobby Johnson's in that band also, you know, Bobby. And uh, he plays bass. And we played for Taste of Marietta uh, this summer. And that's one of those, there were 5,000 people in Marietta Square. They didn't show up to see us, but they were there and they saw us. And we just played some real red meat rock and roll songs, uh, five or six songs, and it was, I mean, they were going nuts. The kids were dancing and everybody, and that, that feeling, you're up on the stage right there in that little stage in the square in Marietta, and that, there's nothing like that. There really is nothing like that. Yeah, it's, it's a good feeling. Um, we played in Athens one time. Uh, yeah. And it, that it was, was good. It was a fraternity I've never party. played for a crowd. A, a, a pie fraternity <laughs> party. We played in Athens, Harvey, and, and me and the rest of the guys in the band. And uh, we're playing 
sounded really good. We, we were pretty good. And so, um, and we thought we were doing great, and we, we did great. Next morning, my uh, Judy, my, my wife, Josh's mom, um, was at the hairstyle somewhere, beauty parlor somewhere. And there was another mother who was at the party, the A-Pi party, at the same place that uh, my wife was at. And she says, yeah, I was in Athens this weekend and, um, at the A-Pi party. It was parents' weekend. Parents' weekend at the A-Pi party. They had a really good band. And I turned around, it was a bunch of old men. <laughs> <laughs> and so that kind of put it in perspective a little bit. And so, hey, this was 20 years ago. Yeah, that, right. We were old <laughs> back then. Years. It was. It was It was at least 15, 20 years oh, ago. It turned good. out as a bunch of old men. But you're younger so, now. You were so much but, yeah, older then. Yeah, so <laughs> anyway. So I'll tell you, 45 minutes in or so, I think I'm slanted very hard towards the Irish. Well, the ice helps both Yeah, my, my theory was very immediately debunked. I haven't revisited old Tom. Oh, that's uh, all right. I, I did revisit the Irishman. Now, it might have been a fairer contest if we had... <clears throat> put some bush mills next to the Irishman. I mean, it, at least. I mean, this this is this is a uh, this is a pickleball player against an Agassi right here. So we got. What was the cheap bottle? How much, yeah, how much did that cost? It was nineteen ninety. Okay, oh, that's for old Tom Horan, and uh, the Irishman was ninety bucks. Yeah. All right. Well, I, like I said, I'm I'm enjoying the whole setup. So, all right, y'all. When we first started talking about doing this podcast. Y'all said we want to get together and play a song. Now, the three of y'all have not all played together, and there's a fourth person that was involved too, Mike. He could unable to be here today. Um, first of all, how do y'all know? What's his connection? Mike actually, wasn't it through the, the girl at the hair salon? The hair salon. I think her, Judy, my, Judy got her my, husband. We were looking for a bass player, and, and I think uh, her husband or somebody they knew somehow or another came together. Judy uh, was at the hair salon. Penny's is a hairdresser, and she was talking, talking about me, my husband, you know, in a band. They need a bass player. And uh, this lady says, Well, I, this, one of the ladies here, her husband plays. He's a bass player. Let me give you his name. And we reached out to him, and that's how it all happened. Right. So the four of y'all got together last so, week, two weeks ago? Last Saturday. Ago. All right, y'all put y'all put a song down. It was a song that two songs, two songs. Thank you. Um, a song that you'd previously written. Yeah, that song was probably written probably five years ago, 2016, maybe something around there. Burn, baby, burn. Is that the well, name? Is that the title? No, that was actually no. That, I can't remember which one I wrote first. Now, probably they were probably written about the same time, same year. All right, we're gonna listen to this song. But before we do, how do you get together four musicians that have not played each other with each other before and make it sound the way that people want to hear it sound? Well, the first thing was I said, let's keep this as basic as possible. <laughs> we kept it simple. But I did. Well, Harvey came one time to my house and just we went. He showed, he, the song. He showed me the song. So I recorded him on my on my, on my uh, system, my recording system. So I had his songs. So when I knew we were getting together, I went and listened to them. So I learned them before we met. So and I learned the songs before we met. So I was, when I say learned, I was familiar with them. I hadn't played them with anybody, but I knew the chords. I knew the structure, more or less, of the songs. So when we got together, I had an idea of what they were about. And Chad played them before. And I, I've, I've, played, on I've played on and off this, the, the, those songs with Harvey before. And, I, and I've heard Harvey perform those songs limitless number of times i mean it's and you know rule number one for a studio drummer is keep it very simple and uh if, if that's why if i'm if i'm working on something that i'm going to play on drums that i'm going to perform live i generally don't go to spotify or whatever and listen to the studio version i listen to a live version preferably something on youtube because i actually see what the drummer's doing because live is always more frantic but for this, we kept it. Uh, I was in the I was in the fishbowl. Right. Yeah, and, and, and so what happens like post production? I mean, how are we getting the sound on? Yeah, to, to sound the way it does. Where by where are y'all sitting? What kind of equipment are we using? Well, we were Mike's. The, he's got a, the room's the size of a three car garage, I guess, over his garage. Um, and he's got two sets of drums on towards the back wall, and he's got. Plexiglass shield. Yeah, he was. It completely yeah. blocks that off. Yeah, you're wearing head, Everybody's wearing headphones. Everybody's got a headset. And we're, it's, everything is either direct in to a recorder or uh, or um or it's mic'd. And some of the headsets were actually working. 
Mine wasn't. Yours wasn't working. Well, you know, being, being your dad, it wasn't working, but you think he would like raise. I've, ne- I've, I've known him for almost 60 years. I've never seen him lose his He goes with the flow. I've never seen him lose his And we all agreed when Stanley's headphones were working, that was not his best work that day. His superior, superlative work was when the headphones weren't working. We're working. All right, well, let's listen. Let, let's hear how uh, Dr. Peppa pulled out uh, playing the guitar without his microphone or without headphones working. All right, enjoy, everybody. That was awesome. That's a damn good song. It is. Um, the lyrics are great. The sound is great. Um, but I think that the second one we're going to listen to is even better. My preference is for the second one. I, I don't know if I can say that, if, 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 but I think that if Luke Combs got a hold of that song, well, I don't Unwired, know Luke. Holm- I don't know who that is, but you're killing me, Harvey. Dad, Luke is. Uh, it's you're killing me, small. Number one country singer right now. 
I think you put Luke. He's Combs. had uh, what you what you just wrote me. His top, his first ten songs have all gone fourteen. Yeah, his first fourteen songs have all gone to number one. I don't yeah. know who it is. Yeah, well, no, he's great. You you should hope he wants to sing your song. We got to get Harvey to Nashville. Yeah. Um, all right. So, is it called the way I'm wired? I'm it's wired? really called just the way I'm wired. Okay. Tell me kind of the the thought process behind writing that particular song. That because I think song it's fantastic. Is totally introspective. It's, it's about you. It's about getting older and accepting who you are and not apologizing for it anymore. That's basically what that song's about. You agree with me about that song? Absolutely. Well, just what's wired anymore, right? Everything's wireless. So there's a certain irony just in the name of that song. To, to be wired a certain way, that's even kind of a, a, a more of a retrospective way of looking at it. Uh, I think most of Harvey's songs appear to be very from the inside out. And I think that's what makes them unique. Maybe some, not some. like the Vegas song. You don't well, that is. You don't have is. a history of debauchery in Vegas, no. but this is it's a perfect song about landing in McCarran and all these crazy things happen. Right. It's my it's my personal favorite song of Harvey's. It's, it's a not, story. It's, it's I not mean, one it definitely of the two tells, they, uh, it tells a story. They're they're somewhat serious but they're comical too. So it's I try to, to put, a little, I yeah, try to put they, some humor. There's humor with some seriousness. So you've seen you've had a front row seat for Harvey's entire kind of development as a musician. Uh, have you if, did, did you kind of see him getting to this point where he's writing his music? I did. And music I really, we said in, even in sixth grade, he kind of always had a little bit of an edge in a good way. He probably did not going to say he's always a good artist. You know, he was always doodling, drawing pictures, and they were kind of out there. And so he he was always kind of creative. And so did it's not not really one a of surprise. the courses I'm wired before listen to it. No. No? <laughs> what, what if Joe gives you the harmonica? All right, everybody, enjoy. Is it I am wired or wired? Just the way I'm wired. Just the way I'm wired. Everybody enjoy just the way I'm wired. Here we go. I love to read. I love good weed. I can take a nap. I can drop of the hat. It's just a skill I've acquired It's just the way that I'm wired Love to play several times a day Let my imagination float Like a make-believe boat That's just the way I'm inspired It's just the way that I'm wired As a listener I like some skills on my fretboard Just the same old feel The way I'm musically wired It's just the way that I'm wired Life's been good, but I still complain Just hope for the future Doesn't matter much change it comes to pass, life's more trick than treat Enjoyed my time in the catbird's seat Well aware that I talk too much Sometimes my humor is just a crutch It's not a trait I desired That's just the way that I'm wired Love my boys, I love my toys, love you know she says she's always right She says that's just the way that she's wired Though I suspect that she's lying Don't mind the cold, the growing old I can't take this heat, man it swells my feet Just takes less time to get tired It's just the way that I'm wired Life's been good, but I still complain. Just hope the near future doesn't weather much change. It comes to pass, life's more trick than treat. Enjoyed my time in the catbird seat.
Just the way that I'm wired Just the way that I'm wired Just the way that I'm wired Awesome. I love it. If you're not going to sing it, Harvey, I'm going to. Who's going to sing it with me? Just the way that I'm wired. It's catchy. Musically mired. uh, And Dad, you're a better singer to give yourself credit for. Well, maybe. (laughs) But you're writing music now, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so so you're you're now writing your own stuff. Um, I actually pulled out a bottle of wild turkey. Um, You've got a song about about wild turkey. I do. But, uh, but I like my dreamer better. I got <laughs> about the dreamer. Well, dr- you know, dreamer I was, you've heard it. I heard it, I think, once or twice. And uh, I don't know, we're, we're all kind of uh, a little sarcastic, a little cynical on our, you know, for, it, kids, kids from the 60s, you know, had that. Uh, that is a good point, though. Grew up in the 60s. I mean, we what kind that, of influence uh, that have on you yeah, all? Yeah, just- rebellious, a little rebellious side. So, you know, you can just look at the world outside right now. You were rebellious? Yeah. And uh, you, there's just so much to choose from, what you can write about and pick on and, and, you know, kind of make a funny take on that and be sarcastic. So, you know, dreaming of a better place to live and making fun of all our resources. And I love reading y'all's lyrics. I mean, the, 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 the lyrics putting together. Do you write your own stuff sometimes, Joe? You know, I wrote a, a sea shanty a couple of months ago. Uh, just, I was like, how hard could it be? And I did, and it'll never be introduced publicly, but I did. I wrote a sea shanty just to prove I could do it. Uh, my wife was on a, a, a poker gambit like she goes frequently, and I was just by myself in the house. I'm like, I'm bored. I think I'll write a sea shanty. <laughs> I wish I had the ability to do that. You know, Ben told the story when he was on the podcast about y'all being at Lionel's Playworld. When uh, you uh, saw the, the uh, guitar, travel, the, Wilbury's the, little, the, the travel Wilbury's, little. first off, is that an, is that an accurate it, story? We fact check him. I think so. Um, so my brother is a fantastic musician. He plays guitar. He plays banjo. Um, it skipped me. I don't. I don't know. I wish I. I wish I would have played, but I didn't. Um, but yeah, he tells a story when he was however old. It's one of those little. Uh, but I mean, it's legit. Uh, Gretsch made a little travel Wilbury's guitar. Uh, it's a mini guitar half-size guitar but there it was kind of good didn't stay in tune very good, right but looked good and it played pretty good so that's what he learned on but we, yeah probably got a line i'll play world well guys this was great i love getting us all together i love when worlds collide joe we've been talking about doing this for a minute uh, which i'm glad we got a chance to do um you know for all y'all listening that that need good mediators joe is one of the best in the business um you're at miles like you said you have 80 neutrals now so you have a system where if, if you're booked you have people that can step in and do a good job and absolutely um, and i'm just very proud of the of everybody i mean it's people call me and say i can't get you who can i get and i'm like uh, there's not a bad one in the bunch dave john's done a great job of really quality control and i'm very inspired and proud of my colleagues up there yeah, well, we appreciate what you're doing, helping us get our cases settled. We only call you with the hard ones, though. You know that, right? I mean, well, that's you're, all I get. You're, you're only getting the hard ones. At my, my pay rate, I don't get easy cases. If, if, if it's easy, <laughs> if it's easy, I'm like, ah, eh, we're not gonna. You and I are out of the business of doing easy cases. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've stopped doing easy cases a while ago. Um, Harvey, when your song goes multi-platinum because of the million people that just heard it on this podcast, what kind of uh, credit? am I going to get a lot actually if there's anybody that's listening to this that has any connections and likes the music get in touch with Josh he'll get in touch with you. <laughs> well that's that's a good point though I mean people you don't know who's going to hear it well I mean you, you say you're open mics once once twice a week me and Graham went to hear you at Suburban Tap yep. a little while ago we had a great time um where where can folks because you know East Cobb there is, a lot I play at Suburban Tap a lot on Tuesdays. Usually Tuesdays. Jimmy Max on Wednesdays. I might do Gaslight tomorrow night. Check his Facebook. You on Facebook? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll post something on Facebook if I'm going to be playing somewhere. I give your socials and yeah, your, your I don't handle. really have a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, if anybody needs to get a hold of me, it's just hog52 at comcast.net. Yes. <laughs> that's, as, yes. that's as high tech as I get. Yeah, one AOL.com. That's Thank great. The Lord, right. uh, Joe, where's everybody, where's everybody find you? Well, uh, musically, my new project is the Bear Bones Band. That's B-E-A-R Bones Band. We got Facebook and Instagram pages, and uh, our focus now is kind of corporate gigs. Uh, in fact, we've got a law firm party coming up next week, and uh, we're, we're tooling this as just a party band. Our, our, our motto is, you know the song after the first guitar lick. 
and we don't mm -hmm. play anything if it's not a very recognizable stand up and dance and sing song so i've always wanted to be in a band that did nothing but entertaining songs so, so i'm in a party band now and that's what we're doing that's the focus uh, bare bones band yeah find me as a mediator it's uh milesmediation.com love to see you love it dad pleasure having you here on the podcast took a little while we, we start talking about this what December, January? No, no, no. No, this is only three, four no, months. No, we, we did, but we. I, I'm pretty well, sure. Well, you want to do music we've been talking about, but just with Joe and Harvey, it's been. It's I been, know, I know. They're debunking <laughs> me. It's been a little while. Finally, it finally came to came to. Yeah. To pass. Well, I, I had a great time. Y'all are always welcome here. Um, if you bring whiskey, you're certainly always welcome here. And uh, everybody, thank you for listening. This was a kind of a different episode. I think it was great. I, I know that y'all enjoyed the music as I did. Um, thanks for listening. Remember, you got to like, you got to comment, you got to subscribe, all those things. Until next time, keep chopping. And as Harvey says, burn, baby, burn. Oh, I got one more thing. Occasionally, I play with a. a a, a full band. Then we're called the Geezernistas. Geezer Nistas. <laughs> I remember y'all played Geezer Stock. Yeah, that was well. That's kind of with it. The, the Geezer Nistas is yeah. like old people with just a hint of danger. All right. And one shout out to the house before we go. Go dogs. Go dogs. Yes. You know we talked about we talked about doing some George stuff. I said you know Probably there's a lot to get to, but yeah. uh, since you brought it up, um, that ass kicking of Tennessee was awesome. This was just we're, this is just last weekend Tennessee. Um, Kirby's got him ready to roll ready again. To go, you as a Gamecock fan can can still appreciate and recognize. Well, we, we spell national championship bowl eligible. Bowl eligible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that, Is that, that where you went? Yeah. So we also do have a podcast. The Sports and Torch presents Last Call, which is a college football podcast that comes out once a week, too. So if you want some more Georgia talk, go to uh, College Football's Last Call. You'll find that. And like we said, as always, keep chopping. Burn, baby, burn. Burn.